me all right thank you sir thank you sir there how's that can you hear me i'm sure you can all right yeah i can do that there we go all right we good all right let me start from the beginning i'm just kidding we're good all right y'all in mark chapter five good i like this pulpit by the way um i'll tell you why because it's a little bit shorter i'm five foot seven and a quarter and there's nothing like standing behind a pulpit that all you can do is see my neck. So <laughs> this, this is nice. I like this. So that's good. All right. So Mark chapter 5. I want to share some thoughts with you this morning. I want to encourage you out of the Word of God. The title of my message this morning is Sharing Your Story for His Glory. Sharing Your Story for His Glory. I want you to think for just a moment, as you're in Mark 5, just stay there. I want you to reflect in the book of Acts chapter 9, where we see the Apostle Paul, or, or rather Saul, on his way to Damascus. We know what Saul's doing. He's going to get some, some paperwork. He's going to take some people. He's going to take those people that know Christ and drag them into prison. That's his goal right now. On the way to Damascus, Paul has a miraculous encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ. And he comes to know Christ as his personal Lord and Savior on that road to Damascus. If you know anything about Paul, and I'm sure that you do, he was a very religious zealot. He was a, a, by his own words, he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. Okay? He was a scholar, Paul was. And so you think when Paul gets saved, when he shares his testimony, when he shares his personal story with those around him, you'd think, well, maybe he'd give some sort of deep theological understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, we do know, according to the book of Peter, in Peter's writings, he said that some of the things that Paul writes are very hard to understand. Okay? But when it comes to sharing his story with those around him, Paul simply shares that story of his conversion on his way to Damascus. You can take this afternoon, go to Acts 22 and Acts 26, read those passages. Simply, when Paul has an opportunity, what is he doing? He's simply sharing his story with those that would listen for the glory of God. And so we see all of this outlined. We see in Paul's life that he wasn't just a man that came to church one day, walked down the aisle, and said the sinner's prayer. I don't see in the Word of God the sinner's prayer, by the way. I don't see that. I see people repenting of their sins and fully putting their trust in Christ Jesus. 
But Paul just didn't come and just, just say a verse. He didn't just come and say a prayer. When Paul was saved, Paul changed. If we were to go there, and we won't, but in Acts 9 and verse 3, we, we see in that uh, passage, verse 3 and 6, we see his encounter with Christ. As we see his encounter with Christ, and he comes to know Christ as his Lord and Savior. We see his desire to learn and be obedient to God in verse 6. We see then that the Lord is observing Paul praying in verses 10 and 11. We see his willingness to be baptized in verse 18. We see him now fellowshipping with the very people that he wanted to throw in jail. He's fellowshipping with fellow believers in verse 19. We see him in verse 20 boldly proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in verse 21 and following, we see him growing in the Lord. And so we have a story or an account of Paul's testimony where he comes to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and he just doesn't remain the same. The man changed. In 20 plus years of ministry, one of the things that I've noticed in ministry these days is just that our churches are filled with people who have made a false profession of faith in Christ. And that we sometimes in the Baptist world have backed that up by saying, you can, you can be saved and live the same way. I don't agree with that. If you've truly come to know Christ, you're a new creature in Christ. You've changed. You're born again. You've met the master of the universe. You should not be the same person. Paul was different. And when Paul shared his story, he simply gave the account of what Christ was doing in his life, and he shared that gospel through the personal testimony of his own personal story. And that brings us to Mark chapter 5, a miraculous story of a man who is demon-possessed coming to know Christ as Lord and Savior. Look with me in Mark chapter 5. I, I want to break up uh, these verses for you this morning, these five points. First of all, we're going to look at the man. We're going to look at his condition in verses 1 through 5. We're going to look at the conversation that Christ had with this demonic man in verses 6 through 13. In verses 14 through 17, we're going to see the consequences of that conversation and what Christ did. In verses 8 and 15, we're going to look at the cleansing. And then finally this morning, as we look at the Word of God, we're going to see the command that Christ gave this man in verses 18 through 20. And the goal this morning is to get you to think about your own personal story when you came to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. I can tell you from my personal story, when I went in the Marine Corps in 1992, I graduated uh, high school, I went in the Marine Corps, and while we were in boot camp, one of my uh, drill instructors told us, he said, we don't have any atheists in the Marine Corps, y'all going to church. And so we went to church, and there was a Lutheran church, and a Catholic church, there was a Protestant church, whatever church you wanted to go to. So I thought, I'm going to go to the one with the best music. And I went to the one with the best music. Now I understand, I'm, I'm undone, I'm unsaved at this point. Went there week after week after week, and one time, I went in there, they're singing Amazing Grace, and they gave a, a, an altar call, and I went down um, to, the, to the altar, and I got behind the stage, and I had this big curtain, they drew the curtain, and there's this gentleman standing in the middle with his hand up in the air, and probably 20, 25 Marines standing around him, and, the, and they said, now repeat this prayer after me, and I'm standing off just a little ways, and I thought, okay, I'll repeat this prayer, I don't know what he said prior to that, that's all I remember, and I just repeated a prayer, that's 1992. 1993 comes along, 1994 comes along. 
1994, January 1st, 12, 15 midnight, I was at Maranatha Baptist Church, and God had been doing a work in my life to teach me that I was a sinner because I was doing all I could to work my way into eternity. Mark chapter 5. 
Then they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerenes. And when he had come out of the boat, immediately there met him, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, coming out of the boat, there met him out of the tomb a man with an unclean spirit, who had his dwelling among the tombs. And no one could bind him, not even with chains, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been pulled apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces. Neither could any one tame him. As we look at these passages of Scripture, we see a condition of a man who is absolutely possessed by Satan and his demons. First thing I want to look at is this thought is, is number one, as we look at his condition. He was possessed by thousands of demons. If you'll scan with me down to, to verse 9, and then we'll also scan down to verse 13, we'll see something here. In verse 9, the word of God says, let's go back to verse 8. For he said unto him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Then he asked him, What is your name? And he answered, saying, My name is Legion, for we are many. Now I'm certain that you have heard that the word legion is a military term referring to a Roman legion, an army. You don't know anything about the word legion. It could, it could be up to 6,000 people, 6,000 men. So it's possible that this man is demon-possessed by upwards of 6,000 demons. If you scan down with me to verse 13, it says then, And at once Jesus gave them permission. Then the unclean spirits went out and entered into the swine, and there were about 2,000 and so, if there's not 6,000 demons within him, we understand that there's at least one demon per pig. He's at least demon-possessed by 2,000 demons. Thank you, sir. And thank you for that, too. You're a good name. I don't care what Pastor Jeremy says about it. So this man is demon-possessed by thousands and thousands of demons, as far as we understand. Secondly, as we look at his condition, we see not only is he possessed by thousands of demons, but secondly, he is infatuated with death. Look with me in verse 2 and verse 5. In verse 2 it says, And when he had come out of the boat, immediately there met him uh, out of the tombs. Now, scan down with me to verse 5, if you will, for just a moment. In verse 5 it says, And always, night and day, he was in the mountains and in the tombs. When you look at the word tombs in the Greek, you know, we, we understand um, what a grave is. We understand that we bury him six feet in the ground. We understand that. That's the image that we have in America. But at this time, what they would do is they would find caves or they would, they would carve out caves and, and there they would lay their dead. And so this man is infatuated with the death. He is infatuated with death. And so he's in these tombs. I would also suggest, thirdly, that this man had just absolutely supernatural strength. Look at the latter part of verse 3 and verse 4 with me. It says, And no one could bind him, verse 3, not even with chains, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been pulled apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces. Neither could any one tame him. He's got supernatural strength. 
When you look up the Greek words here, we're not talking about ropes. We're literally talking about metal chains this man was, was chained with, and he would break them asunder. Fourthly, he was uncontrollable. Look at the latter part of verse 4. We've already read it. But it says, Neither could anyone tame him. The word tame there in the Greek literally just means to restrain. Nobody could restrain him. This man was absolutely uncontrollable. He's demon-possessed by thousands of demons. He's infatuated with death. He's got supernatural strength. He's uncontrollable. But I'd also like to suggest that mentally and physically and spiritually, this man could not find peace and he could not find rest. Look at verse 5. In verse 5 it says, And always, always, night and day, he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying out and cutting himself with stones. Night and day, always, just running around. If you look at the book of Luke, and we won't, they've got a parallel passage there in that book, you'll see that he's not just running around, he's running around naked in the tombs, just going to and fro. He can't find peace. He can't find rest. This man is in a horrible condition. And then finally, in verse 5, he says that he was self-mutilating. He was self-mutilating. He says, and cutting himself with stones. Now think about this for just a moment. In another parallel passage of Scripture, there's two men that we see that are demon-possessed. We believe that there's no uh, conflict with the Scripture, that rather Mark, the author of this particular book, is focusing on this one demonic man. There's no one else really mentioned. Where's his family, his friends? Where's he had in society? Where's his job? He's an outcast. This man is in an absolutely horrible position in life. His condition is horrible. His condition is absolutely horrible. But then the Scripture moves on from pointing out the condition of this man to a conversation that Christ had with him. Start with me with verse 6. It says, When he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and worshipped Him. And he cried out with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God that you do not torment me. For he said to him, Come out of the man, unclean spirit. Then he asked him, What is your name? And he answered and said, My name is Legion, for we are many. Also he begged him earnestly that he would not send him out of the country. Now a large herd of swine was feeding there near the mountains. So all the demons begged him, saying, Send us to the swine, and we may enter them. And at once Jesus gave them permission. Then the unclean spirits went out and entered into the swine. There was about 2,000. And the herd ran violently down the steep place and into the sea and drowned into the sea. We'll stop right there. We see this conversation. Now in this conversation, I see at least two things I'd like to point out to you. Number one, we see the demons' recognition, or that the demons recognize something in this conversation in verses 7 through 8. They recognized at least three things. Number one, they recognize the position of Christ. Look at verse 7 with me again. It says in, in verse 7, it says, And he cried out with a loud voice and said, 
What have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? They understand the position of Christ, that He was God. They understood His deity, that He was the Son of God, the Son of the Most High God. They understood who Christ was. Secondly, they understood His power. Look at the latter part of verse 7. It says in the latter part, He says, I implore you by God that you do not torment me. The understanding there is that he's afraid that Jesus is going to cast him into the lake of fire. And so he understands the power and the authority that Christ had to cast him immediately into hell. And then in verses 10 and 12, we see that he recognized that he needed to get permission from Christ. Look at verse 10 with me. It says in verse 10, it says, Also he begged him earnestly that he would not send them out of the country. Now a large herd of swine was feeding there near the mountains, and so all the demons begged him, saying, Please, send us to the swine that we may enter them. I know that you've read the book of Revelation. Throughout all the book of Revelation, as you see God dealing with the demonic world, the demonic world has no power in and of itself other than what God gives it. They can only do what God allows them to do, and they can only do it for a certain amount of time. That's it. God is in absolute control. Christ is in absolute control of this demonic world. They understood His position. They understood His power. They understood the fact they needed to get permission from Christ to do anything. But not only do we see the demon's recognition, but we see the demon's request. Look at verse 9 with me. They made a request. It says in verse 9, Then he asked him, What is your name? And he answered, saying, My name is Legion, for we are many. Also he begged him earnestly that he would not send them out of the country. And now a large herd of swine was feeding there near the mountain. So all the demons begged him, saying, Send us to the swine, that we may enter into them. And at once Jesus gave them permission. Then the unclean spirits went out and entered into the swine, and there were about 2,000, and the herd ran violently down into the steep place. And we're good there. We see the request. Now what was... What was perhaps the reason for the request? And I've looked this up, I've studied it, and some have suggested that the request was made there because they understood that Jesus Christ had the power to cast them out. And that those that are in the know understand that demons love to inhabit. And that's their goal, is to inhabit. And so instead of being cast out of this man, because Christ isn't going to let him back into the man that they just cast him out of, they decided, well, hey, let's go at least into the swine. Let's go into the pigs. And so that was their request. They love to inhabit a body that is made available. Now, how, how does that occur? I don't have any hardcore facts on how a demon can inhabit or how Satan enters in the heart and mind of a person, but I think we have a clue, if I can just turn there for a moment, found in John 13. I just want to read this to you. It says in John 13 in verse 1, it says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that His hour had come, that He should depart from the world to be, uh, to, with, the world to, to be with the Father, having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. And supper being ended, the devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot. Now it didn't say that he went into the heart of Judas. It just said he put into the heart what? A message. And what was the message? Betray him. 
Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into His hands and that He had come from the God and was going to God, He rose from supper. So in that moment, what we see with Judas Iscariot at the very beginning, as he's sitting there at the, at the table with Jesus and he's eating with Jesus, Satan puts in the mind of Judas to betray Jesus. He cast that thought in there. Now, I don't believe for a moment as we look at the Scripture, it's possible for a believer to be inhabited by Satan. I don't believe that for a moment. But I do believe that Satan continually speaks to our heart and mind. And he drops seeds into our mind. He can drop seeds of doubt when it comes to your relationship with your wife. He can drop seeds of doubt when it comes to your relationship with God. He can put seeds in your heart and mind when you come to church to be bitter and angry with brothers and sisters in Christ. That's absolutely what Satan can do. He can put these thoughts in there. That's why we as God's people have to be armed with the full armor of God so that we can hold off the arrows, that the flaming arrows that Satan is trying to throw at us every single day when we're filled with the Word of God. Listen, those doubts are not effective towards us that are filled with the Word of God. That's what Satan does. But he didn't stop there with Judas, did he? He put these thoughts in his mind. He put these thoughts in his heart. But if you go down to John 13 and verse 27, and I'll just read this to you. In verse 27 of John 13, it says this. It says, Now, after the piece of bread, Satan entered him. Now he's possessed. How did this happen? Well, what do you know about the life of Judas? He was very passionate about money, wasn't he? Very greedy, very selfish, full of pride and arrogance. And so what's the gateway for an unbeliever to have a demon reside within them. Sin. It's gross sin. They open their heart to sin. And as they continue to sin and can continue to embellish sin, it opens a gateway for Satan to enter in. And the same thing in one sense or another is true for the believer. When you're not in God's Word, when you're not praying, when you're not uh, fellowshipping with God's people, you open yourself for Satan to drop those thoughts in your mind so that you will be divisive within the body of Christ. You'll cause division just like Judas did, and cause you to sin and doubt and, and fall away perhaps from the Lord in your walk with Christ. And so this man, this demonic man we find in Matthew chapter, excuse me, Mark chapter 5, I think that we can suggest this at least. At some point in his life, he gave himself over to sin. And in so doing that, he opened a gateway for Satan to enter in. And so this demonic party that desires to live within a host went from this demonic man into the pigs. But I'd also like to make a suggestion based upon another person's thought, and that was that perhaps Christ allowed this to happen so that he could truly demonstrate to those that were maybe observing this situation that he indeed had gotten rid of these demonic uh, beings from this demonically possessed man and, and to demonstrate and show that deliverance indeed had taken place. It's one thing to be able to say, your sins are forgiven, right? And because of their unbelief, Jesus Christ then had to heal a man to prove that he had the power to forgive sin. I think the same thing could be uh, here as well. Hey, uh, I rid you of the demonic world. Well, how do I prove that? 
They're now in the swine, and they're gone. And so we see the request. And so we see His condition. We see the conversation. We see the consequences of what the Lord Jesus Christ did. Now let me say this before we read verses 14, 15, 16, and 17. We all want to stand for truth. I'm sure that we do. And sometimes we get it in our mind that when we stand for truth, it'll always result in positive consequences. It's not true. There's always going to be consequences in everything that we do. The question is, will there be positive or will there be negative? Neither one of those have a result on what we're going to do. But understand, when you stand for truth and you do the right thing, sometimes negative consequences are going to come your way. You just stand for the Lord. Christ did this in verse 14 of Mark chapter 5. It says, to those, So those who fed the swine fled. And they told it in the city. So you've got these onlookers, these farmers. And they told it to the city and to the country. And they went out to see what it was that had happened. Then they came to Jesus and saw the one who had been demon-possessed and had the legion sitting and clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who saw it told them how it happened to him who had been, excuse me, told how it had happened to told them how it had happened to him who had been demon-possessed and about the swine. Then they began to plead with him to depart from their region. There's the consequence. Jesus miraculously saves this man. Thousands and thousands and thousands of demons. The greatest thing these people have probably ever seen. Leave. That's the consequence. Just leave. We don't want you here. And it's sad. Now when you go to the next couple of chapters, you're going to find Jesus encounters a different group of people. And you know what? I take that back. It's not in this. It's, it's in John chapter 4. You remember the, the lady at the well? Jesus Christ reveals who he is to her. She runs back to the city. She, hey, I think I found Messiah. She brings the city out. And the city comes out and they, they said, because of your testimony, we're listening to Jesus. We've heard his words. We believe in Jesus. Christ, will you stay with us? Two totally different reactions. Here Jesus does a miraculous thing, and they ask Him to leave, and that's the consequences. Now, why would they ask Him to leave? The only thing that I can think of, it probably was an economic reason. Probably was a financial reason. If you think about 2,000 swine in today's currency, it's about a quarter of a million dollars. That's what they lost. Leave. And a lot of people put money and glory and fame and this world between them and coming to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And that's what this city did. And so we see the condition, we see the conversation, we see the consequences, and then we see the cleansing of this man. Look at verse 8 with me. Two thoughts here. In verse 8 it says this. It says, For he said to him, Come out of the man, unclean spirit. Then he asked him, What is your name? Christ has power over demon possession and the influence thereof. Christ has power over the demonic world. If you go back to Mark chapter 4 and, and just the last verses in Mark 4, Christ had the power over storms, didn't He? Peace be still! Not only does Christ have power over creation and the storms of our life, but Christ also has the power over the demonic world in your life. And so Christ has power. He has authority. 
But secondly, not only in this cleansing do we see the power over the demonic world, but we have the power that we see that Christ has the power to completely restore those that are possessed or oppressed. Look at verse 15 with me. It says, Then they came to Jesus and saw the one who had been demon-possessed and had the legion, sitting and clothed in his right mind. And they were afraid. And they were afraid. I want you to think about this for just a moment as we think about Christ and His ability to restore the man. First of all, what we see in verse 15 is this. He was able to restore the man to his original unpossessed condition. He was able to restore the man to his original unpossessed condition. Then they came to Jesus and saw the one who had been, that's past tense, folks, who had been demon-possessed. Christ has the power over the satanic world. Christ was able to fully restore this man to his original unpossessed condition. Secondly, this, this man was able to be restored by Christ and bring about peace and rest. Going back to verse 15. Then they came to Jesus and saw the one who had been demon-possessed and had the legion sitting. As I read that, I, I see peace. I see that this man, maybe for the first time in his life in years, is at rest. If I read to you again verse 5, we see who he formerly was. And always, night and day, he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying out and cutting himself with stones. Fast forward to verse 15, sitting. Remarkable difference, isn't it? One man, absolutely tormented by Satan. Christ makes a difference in his life. He cast out the demonic world, and now he's at peace, and he's at rest. Not only was Christ able to restore him to his original unpossessed condition, he was able to bring about peace and rest. He was also able to restore his dignity. You remember I had mentioned Luke and in Luke, we understand in verse 8 and 26 that he ran around in the tombs naked. In verse 15, it says not only was he sitting, it says he was sitting and clothed. He brought about this man's dignity. But fourthly, in verse 15, it says that Christ restored his right mind. He was demon-possessed had the legion sitting and clothed in what? In his right mind. The word in the Greek simply means to be of sound mind. And one person said this, he said, the man was in complete control of himself again. Before I came to know Christ, there were times in my life that I was absolutely out of control. And I have never experienced being out of control like that after I had met Jesus Christ. Christ put me in my right mind. What a beautiful picture. And then my fifth thought this morning is this, the command, verses 18 and 20. In verse 18 it says, And when he got into the boat, he who had been demon-possessed begged him, 
that he might be with him. I have thought about this passage of Scripture. I have mulled over it, and I just go back and I think about this man's condition. I think about his possession. I think about him running up and down in the mountains in the tombs, naked. I think about him crying. I think about him not in his right mind, being a complete and total outcast, having no connection to society, no connection to his parents, no connection to family, friends, loved ones, nothing. He was in an absolutely horrible condition. I don't know where he got his food from. I don't know where he got his water from. I don't know how he was fed. I don't know how he slept. But it sounds like a terrible, terrible condition. And to be freed of this, to be freed of the chains that society had tried to put on this man, to try to be tamed by society. Society did their best, but society failed. Society does not have an answer for salvation. There's not an answer in drugs. There's no answer in alcohol. There's no answer in sex or pornography. Society has no answer. Those that try to study society as best as they can, when they look at it from a non-biblical perspective, they have no answer for salvation. They leave the man more chained than when he came in there. You come in and you try to get diagnosed and, and it's this diagnosed and that diagnosed and, and you bring more pain and more trouble and more prison to the man that came in seeking for release than when he left. Society has no answer. But Christ does. The Lord does. Christ brought this man into his right mind. No wonder he begged and pleaded with Jesus. I want to be united with you. I want to accompany you. I couldn't imagine the man that freed me from my sin, forgave me of my sin. I couldn't imagine being this man. I would have just grabbed him, grabbed him by the legs. Don't leave me. I want to be with you. You're everything I have. And Jesus Christ gives him a command. You know how hard this would be? It's not recorded in Scripture. But I would be like, no, Jesus, I want to stay with you. I don't, I don't want to stay here. It says, however, Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how He has had compassion on you. How hard would that be? If you just, in your mind, imagine the condition of this man. Imagine what he's freed from. Imagine his passion to be with Jesus. And Christ says, no, you stay here. Oh, that'd be hard. That would be so hard. But in verse 20, it says this, And he departed and began to proclaim in Decapolis and all all that Jesus had done for him, and all marveled. I just, I'm torn emotionally as I read these verses, thinking, Christ, you freed me from every bondage I was in. You've restored me. And now you want me to stay here. Yes, I want you to stay here. And this is what I want you to do. I want you to go home. I want you to go to your friends. In another passage of Scripture, it says, go to your family and friends and tell them 
what great things the Lord has done for you and how He has had compassion on you. Don't go and tell them your wonderful success story of how awesome you broke free of your addictions. Don't go and tell them that you read a book and you received self-help and uh, self-counsel. No, you go and you tell them the things that Christ has done for you. And that's what you're called to do, folks. We open this up saying, hey, what is your story? What is your testimony? Are you a false convert or are you a living convert? Are you a changed convert? Do you know Jesus? And if you do, guess what? You've been freed from bondage. Tell the story. Tell the story. When we look at verse 19 and 20, some things that we'll point out there and we'll bring this to a close this morning. First of all, I looked at the idea that he departed. Oh, I've already expanded upon that, how hard that must have been. The second thing we see that he began to what? Publish. To just proclaim, to herald openly everything that Jesus had done. And then it says this in verse 20. says, and he departed and began to proclaim in Decapolis. Now what is Decapolis? You look that up in the Greek, you find that it means the ten cities. And so if you can picture in your mind the nation of Israel and go to the east central part of Israel, the most northern part of these ten cities being Damascus, and the most southern part of it being Philadelphia, in between there are eight cities that this man began to proclaim Jesus about. Isn't that amazing? This man began to use his story for God's glory. I want to finish by taking you to Ephesians chapter 2. In Ephesians chapter 2, one of my favorite passages of Scripture in all of the New Testament, we see three things here. It says in chapter 2 and verse 1 of Ephesians, it says, And you He made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins. When we look at this gentleman, demon-possessed, and in his condition, obviously we walk away and say, That man was dead in his trespasses and his sins. Before you came to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Christ has restored you. In verse 2 it says, "...in which you once walked according to the course of this world." And so, not only were we dead to sin, but now we're walking the course to, to the course of society. We're just going with the flow and the philosophy of this world. That's who we were. Not only were we walking according to the course of this world, but we're walking according to the prince, the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedient, among whom we all once conducted ourselves. So we're dead in our trespasses and sin. We're walking a course to the course of society. We're under the power of Satan. But then he goes on to say again, that we gave in to what? Our carnality. We conducted ourselves in what? The lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath just as others. That's who we were. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 is who we were. Walking according to this society, walking according to sin, walking in accordance to Satan, 
That's who we were. It doesn't matter if you were five years old when you came to know Jesus Christ. At that point that you recognized who Jesus Christ was and you gave your life to Christ prior to that, you're a child of Satan. Okay? And I don't mean that to be funny, but you were. You were a child of Satan. You were a child of sin. You were a child that was going to give yourself over to the flesh. But if you have a story where you were saved later in life, later in life, you have a story where you went from debauchery to the love of Christ. Where it was nothing to take God's name in vain. It was nothing to lie. It was nothing to cheat and steal and kill with our hearts or with our mind. It doesn't matter. We were adulterers. We are sinful, wicked, ungodly people who are under the wrath of God. That's who we were. And in verse 4 it says, But God, who is rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, what? Made us alive together with Christ. And so we see the command. The command is, man, I saved you but I want you to serve me. I want you to go. I want you to tell your family and friends about me and the compassion that I've had for you. That same command is given to you and it's given to me to tell our story for God's glory. Two questions before we close this morning. Number one, this morning. It doesn't matter if you're a member of this church. It doesn't matter if you're in good standing with this church. This church isn't going to save you. Walking down this aisle isn't going to save you. Saying the sinner's prayer isn't going to save you. Being born into a Christian family isn't going to save you. My question for you is, as you're sitting there, do you personally know Christ as your Lord and Savior? Is there a time that the Creator of the universe met with you and you gave your life to Him and He changed that life? I remember when I was so angry. I was so angry at God. When I was in the Marine Corps, I'd lay in my, my bed, my bunk, and I would literally lift my hand up to God and literally dare Him to take my life as I took His name in vain. I was hateful. I was mean. And I remember as I was angry with God, when God saved me, I remember when I first came to know Christ, probably a couple of months in, I had dropped my Mountain Dew on the ground and I took the Lord's name in vain. It's just, it was nothing. And God convicted my heart at that moment. Mark, you, you used to take my name in vain. Now I'm going to clean this up so that you will respect my name and no longer use it as a four-letter curse word. God began to change me from a filthy man to something that only God can make new. And I hope that that's the same testimony that you have. I pray that's the same testimony, that, that you're just not sitting in here and, and you're relying on something other than Christ to get you to heaven. So my first question is, do you have a story? My second question is, who do you know this week that you can share your story with? This man was encouraged and commanded by the Lord Jesus Christ to go to his family and friends. And maybe, maybe you're a new convert, maybe you're a young Christian in Christ and people have seen your life, they've seen who you were on the job site how angry, how mean you were, but God has changed you in the power of Christ. Who do you know this week that you can share your story with? To sit down with them and say, this is who I used to be. 
this is who I am now. Can I show you Jesus? Can I point you to the Lord Jesus Christ? And as you're thinking about that name, of who you can share that story with, I encourage you in just a moment as we're going to close in prayer and, um, and during this time of invitation, if you would pray for that person that doesn't know Christ and pray for them and pray how you can possibly go to them and share your story with them of how you came to know Christ. And during this invitation, maybe also you'd like to pray and receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior acknowledging that you're a sinner, that you've sinned against God, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Repenting of your sins and confessing who Christ is. Romans 10, 10, If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thine heart that God has raised Him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Let's take a moment and pray as we have this moment of invitation. If you sit right there in your pew and you can pray for somebody this morning. Pray for somebody that desperately needs Jesus Christ. Pray how you can approach them. Pray how you can talk to them about your story. And maybe this morning, if you don't have a story, you need to say, you know what? I need to have a story. I need to repent of my sins. So let's take a moment this morning and and let's spend some time thinking on these things. Thank you this morning. Uh, Thank you for hearing me, and uh, thank you for hearing the Word of God. And I pray that you have somebody in your mind that you can maybe approach them this week or in the weeks to come and share your story with them for God's glory. Um, Do I need to turn it over to Pastor Dean? Don't forget them. Will you be here tonight? Yes, sir. We'll be here at 6 o'clock. Yes, sir. Appreciate the message this morning. Appreciate the being here this morning. If you have an encounter with a human possessed person, it's not good stuff. I think of one individual in Papua Philippines. Probably an outside individual in Papua, this one man. He had a no shirt, which you don't wear a shirt, you don't have to. 
not a better day than today to know Christ. You like it? Maybe just spend some time. Mark would love to take a few moments to speak to you from Esau's heart. Good Marine. Once a Marine, always a Marine. Once a Christian, always a Christian. Maybe someone here would like to just check a few marks from the door. Social distancing, whatever that's supposed to be. Someone with some answers. Simple answers are hard life. 